Welcome to the State of Sound podcast, produced by the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. A companion series to the blockbuster exhibit, The State of Sound, a world of music from Illinois. Now playing at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sound podcast, recording live inside of the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum. My name is Reggie Guyton, and I'm your host for this episode. I'm here with my producer, Randy Irwin, and sound engineer, Garrett West. The origins of house music as a genre has long been debated, but one thing remains undisputed. Chicago has always caught the groove. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with four-time Grammy nominee, producer, remixer, songwriter, and DJ, Steve Silk Hurley. Thank you so much, Steve, for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. The first thing I want to do is... uh, (laughs) <laughs> just address your background. Tell uh, I know I just started with an intro, but can you tell the people listening about your background and where you're from? Uh, from the south side of Chicago. Um, g- grew up on 89th and Blackstone, which is near Stony Island over east. So basically my background is that I was an avid music fan due to my dad playing music on family trips with his eight track recordings and cassette recordings and things like that so and he has he he loved jazz music he used to listen to that at home so i always was hearing music so it i developed a strong appetite for great music and it just um eventually got exposed to the fact that i could actually mix records together one from one record to another seamlessly and that was something that was new at the time not necessarily new to the clubs to the club scene, but new to the average person, you know, people didn't even know that music was being mixed together. And I, I was in the basement learning to do that. Um, and once I learned to do that, then that kind of took me into, uh, my DJ career. So I don't know how far you want me to go, but I'm basically, if you want to put it in a nutshell, I'm a producer, songwriter, remixer, engineer, anything that has to do with creating records. Uh, that's what I do for a living. I have a record label, SNS Records, and um, I'm able uh, I'm able to use my ear that I developed from my early days with my dad's music all the way to what I listen to, and and from DJing. That's what influences my production style, and um, I ended up being one of the pioneers of house music. So um, that's in a nutshell. A long nutshell is it. <laughs> it's all good. This is about preserving history and making sure that something that is influential gets its due and its, uh, its flowers. Um, so before we get too far into what you do, can you tell us about the artifacts that you loaned us to the exhibit? Okay, so um, I have two artifacts. One is one of my earlier pieces of, uh, which is one of the earliest samplers ever made, the uh, Akai S612 sampler, which uh, I use to to uh, record voices. If those of you who don't know what a sampler is, it basically records any sound uh, either through a microphone or through line inputs, and and you can play it on your keyboard. And um, this was one of the earlier ones, so it didn't have very much time that you could sample. You couldn't sample a whole song, but you could sample little phrases such as Jack Your Body, you know, Jack Your Body. <laughs> you could sample that and then it becomes Jack, 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 Jack Your Body, <laughs> you know, because you're 
because you're actually triggering it with the with the keyboard. Um, so I basically use that particular um, unit for jack uh, the bass and the keyboards of Jack Your Body because at the time when I did Jack Your Body, I didn't have my own keyboard so I sampled a bass note from one of my friend's keyboards and put it in the sampler and I used that to actually play the bass sound and the keyboard sound so it was a very primitive way but it was actually on the cutting edge because samplers were relatively new uh, then I later used that same sampler vocal sample on 10 cities that's the way love is um and at, at, shortly after that i i got a better sampler um i was able to get in the kai s1000 but this was like my first sampler that i was using on records the other piece is a yamaha tx81z synth module which is actually a module that i use for a lot of sounds that were just trendy sounds at the time i used it on most of my remixes in the 90s i use it for my bass sound and for several other songs i used it you know people like michael jackson cc peniston inner city ten city madonna jamanda um a lot of those remixes that i did and some original productions i actually use that unit for my bass uh so that was one of the main things i used that module for and it's, it's basically a rack mount module you might look at it and say oh that's a keyboard it's it actually is a keyboard within the box and you basically play it from a computer or you can play it from another computer through what we used to call MIDI <laughs> that we used to MIDI was like how we got our keyboards to communicate and how you could play multiple instruments from one source. And um, now that's been replaced by kind of like USB MIDI. So now the new keyboards, you can play everything within your computer, but you had before you had to have these modules. So both of these modules that I put here are actual modules that had to be controlled by something. So that was always um, that was that was that was new technology at the time. But if somebody saw it right now, they'd be, well, where's your laptop that you were using back then? Uh, we didn't have laptops, you know, so um, it's pretty cool. I appreciate that because sampling started relatively around that time um, in the 80s or so and has almost become inseparable from popular music right now, whether that's rap, whether it's actual pop or even rock. Uh, it's genres, no, no boundaries. That's true. Can you talk about the culture of house music when you were first starting? Um, I would say that uh, when, when the culture of house music uh, started, um, the culture of house music, really, it, it traces all the way back to the disco days with Gamble and Huff and all the music that they did because that influenced us. But the culture in Chicago growing up, what we called house music was the music that Frankie Knuckles would have played at the warehouse. So we refer to anything that was like that more uplifting music that makes you feel good. Uh, you know, South Soul, Prelude, uh, uh, like I said, Philadelphia International, Teddy Pendergrass and all these artists that, that were soulful. It, it was influenced by that. So 
we would play old records, but we would also play records that also had a four on the floor disco groove with a nice bass line, hopefully. Um, and, and basically the culture, the house music was born because in our culture, what we did as DJs was we would find the best part of the old record. For instance, I took I Can't Turn Around by Isaac Hayes and did a re-edit of it. Several of us DJs did re-edits of it because at the end there was a vamp that had a great bass line and, and horns and, and and we like to repeat that part. You know, the dun 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 and the bass line, you know. So we 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 made re-edits of it. So then I eventually took my sampler that was even older than this sampler. It was like a pedal sampler that you use for a guitar. It was called a boss sampling pedal. And I sampled myself saying, I can't turn around. And then it was, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I, I, I can't, I can't. That's, so that's what I was doing with the, I was triggering that sample from a drum machine's rim shot, <laughs> the 909, and playing that. So it was, it made this crazy, frantic sounding sounding thing um and that was in the early days before i even started putting records out i was playing these records from four track so the culture of house music was influenced by disco um new york garage music i guess you would call it what larry levan was playing because that was the same thing that frankie was playing which was, you know, he was from New York and he moved here and he was playing that music. And a younger group of guys, Wayne Williams, Tony Hatchett, Andre Hatchett, Alan King, those guys were DJing at a place called The Loft. And it was high school kids dancing to this music and they called it house music, but it wasn't being promoted as such. It was more so it was almost like a preppy fest because everybody wore wore these these uh, these polo polo shirts and Izod shirts. We even had Izod Polo Fest and all these different parties. So it was more about being trendy with fashion and dressing a certain way. Mostly people from Hyde Park High School, uh, some from my school, Limbloom, but uh, mostly Hyde Park and Kimwood were kind of the dominant schools that were really behind um, support of this music being played at a party which was totally different from everything that was being played and i went i remember it was like probably 1981 i went to there was a place called the loft but it was basically a loft and it was called the loft and when i went in there i couldn't believe what i saw people were dancing like crazy like you know i'm a fan of funk music so when people dance to funk music it was a more cool thing like like or they were doing whatever the popular dance was back in the day. They bump and the, you know, the feeling and whatever, whatever was the, 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 the popular dance, but this was a different type of dancing and they called it jacking. <laughs> and, and they were basically dancing around, dancing on pretty much on top of each other, <laughs> you know, get behind the girl and dance, dance a certain way with the girls. It was, it was, it was kind of, um, a romantic type of dancing almost. Um, these are teenagers we're talking about, you know, 16, 17. So you're talking about, you know, that that was all a part of the culture. The culture was not just one thing. You know, um, Frankie's Club was a black gay club. But these were straight kids that would love the music as well. And this other scene. So th- there were 
there was more than one scene and that scene, you know, eventually evolved into going to places like Sawyer's and also the penthouse, um, which were two places I was trying to get in once I once I learned how to DJ. I started out as a fan, but then I, when I saw that music being played, I was like, what is this music and how can I get it? I only make about, I don't know how much I was making, $5 an hour, $6 an hour at uh, working at Jewel Food Stores and going to school at the same time. So I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a lot of money for records. And in order to play those records, you had to have two copies to really be to really play them the right way to play the best parts of them. So that's where the re-edit came in. So the re-edits of all of these classics became, um, they were done on reel to reel and we would play, bring our reel to reel with a pitch control. There was a reel to reel called a 909, a pioneer 909 that we played the music from on reel to reel because it had a pitch control. So you could start it up and you could mix in like that. And then I got a four track and I started playing my re- remix edits on that, which was a Tascam Porta Studio four track recorder that lets you separate channels. So I was learning about production, didn't even know it as a DJ. So I was playing those edits and then I finally started messing around with drum machines. So I evolved into doing music by just trying to create these exclusive tracks to be played at the parties like. My I Can't Turn Around, I probably made that in 1983, but it didn't come out until 86, which is why the other version that came out on uh, The Love Can't Turn Around, which was was a copy of my arrangement of it, but then with some new lyrics to it, that came out before mine because we were in a record deal. We were uh, waiting on them to get the promotion together before we could release that song. So that the, the culture and the genre were kind of happening at the same time. The culture started a long time ago. It was, if you talk to someone in New York, they'll say that the culture, you know, started with, you know, what they were doing out there. All of those things are true about the culture, but the genre of house music started in Chicago. When we started making our own records the same way the hip hop culture exists because people took break beats and we're creating different, different um, repeats of best parts of records. For instance, the rapper's delight was the loop of the good times by Sheik. You know, so it was the same type of thing with I can't turn around for me. That's the best part of the record. I'm gonna make a record with that. I'm gonna play that bass line over, put a 909 drum machine on it to make it sound a certain way, and. That became the signature of house music is these drum machines and different types of synthesizers. So, you know, different people use different synthesizers. Um, and I I tended to uh, the, the, the job. But as far as the culture, the difference between then and now, I think that's what you asked me. The difference between then and now is that the culture still exists, except the genre is a worldwide global genre that has broken off into so many subgenres that I couldn't even name them all like deep house, soulful house. Uh, and then you have your EDM genres too, and progressive and uh, trance. And you have so many different genres that spawned off of what house music did because of the success of house music. People that like, uh, you know, music that was a little more aggressive might do what they call tech house now, which is more like baseline driven and, and, and hitting kind of hard 
Whereas the EDM stuff is kind of like, it sounds like house music on the drums, but then, but then it's a whole different style of music, you know, a whole different approach with the music. Whereas house music started out, not all songs were songs. Some were just tracks, just saying, Jack, 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 your body or, you know, um, uh, like this, la, like, like, la, 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 like this, you know, like we use the samplers and we use the drum machine and we use the bass lines, you know, the bass, different, whatever synthesizer you could borrow to sample or whatever synthesizer you could, you, you uh, could have eventually afford to buy. That was what you had. You just had one keyboard and you wore that, use that thing into the ground, ran it into the ground, you know, uh, until you could get the next thing. So I, what I can say about the genre is that, um, all the DJs that were playing music that um, fit the culture of house music eventually started doing their own tracks. And that's when it caught on like wildfire, because now you have all these different guys doing music that reflects their taste in music. For instance, Fingers Inc. loves jazz. You know, Larry Hurd um, and Robert Owens was a singer. Larry Hurd loved putting together music that was reflective of jazz, like say a Roy Ayers or like a, I don't know what exactly what his influences were, but he had always had a jazzy flavor to his music and he used certain keyboards. It's funny how all of that kind of tied together and made the identity of each producer different. Marshall Jefferson with his pianos, which influenced other people to use pianos, including myself. You know, so uh, with the Move Your Body song, you know, that that song set a trend that, you know, people actually like pianos and I love pianos. So I didn't know you could use pianos on a house record. At, you know, and they will react. Although we did used to play a song called Save You Save My Day by Cheryl Lynn that had a piano and I made a version of that, but I never had released it. So um, most of this, the culture, like I said, started from us as DJs looping records and making our own version that we could play at the party that would make people react even more so than they would if you just played the record from start to end. Because if you think about it, most of the records that we would play in the early 80s, and it, and if they were from the 70s, they would have an intro, then they would go into the verse and the chorus, verse, chorus. And then the best part of most of these records was the end when they vamp and people are doing ad-libs. And that's where all the energy is, you know? Like think about a show, a live show that you go to. When, when that person sings their favorite song, how long do they vamp? Sometimes they might vamp longer than they did the song. Like they might do the song for two and a half minutes and then it's a seven minute vamp. Give the drummer some and give the <laughs> give give the uh, guitarist some. They're giving everybody some. They're giving the light man some. They're give, <laughs> giving the ushers ushers. Let's get the ushers some like they're just you know what I'm saying. So that's that's what house music is, is a vamp. Like that's what it started out being. And then it, then it became more than that. And we can we can touch on that. You mentioned your first. You mentioned Sour Sawyer's, otherwise known as Sours, um, you know, yep. disputed language, colloquial language, of course. But what was your first gig like? Um, what's funny is, and I say this to all your up and coming DJs that are just starting now, um my first gig was not a gig, meaning I didn't get paid. Um I basically um, before I even got to, to Sours, I, I had to, I had to pay my dues, so to speak. So 
the only paid gigs I would say I had was was doing somebody's house party in the basement. And I had some speakers that I bring out and I would DJ in the basement for twenty five dollars. So that wasn't any real money. And it was a whole lot of work. Um, and I had to have the money for the equipment and the records. So it was I was losing money just technically if I look at it from a business standpoint. But the reason I wanted to get to Sours or Sawyer's um, we was be, was because that was where the, the culture of house music was was being played for the high school students of that particular era. Like all these people from different high schools were coming out to hear hear the house music. Eventually we did call it house music. I don't know when we started, what year we started calling it that, but it was just this music <laughs> pretty much, you know, some people may have called it disco because, but then when it wasn't disco, it was like, we weren't saying post disco, but that's technically what it was. The garage music was kind of like post disco. Uh, I wanted to be a part of that scene, but the only way for me to get in as a DJ, I was up and coming. I'd hadn't, proving myself I just was going to the parties when I could sneak out because my parents were very strict my father said you have to be in by 12 if you go to the party and the party really just got going at 12 so I'm at some point sometimes I would tell my dad I was uh, working late at Jules doing some stock work Uh, we had to stock the uh, groceries on the shelves and sometimes I was working late but this time luckily on Friday or Saturday I was working late, but I really wasn't working late. And I would just get on the Stony Island bus and I would go to Sawyer's and <laughs> I snuck out. And then I <laughs> then I get back home at whatever time. And it was like I came from work and that wasn't an honest thing for me to do. I know that. But that's the only way I was able <laughs> to at least see what the heck was going on down there. And when I saw it, I knew for sure that that was what I wanted to do. So I started getting in DJ battles and I, I won one DJ battle at El Panama, which was just a, a like an older adult club. One of my mentors, her Bertha, put me in that battle. He was just trying to help me out. And then another one was the penthouse, which was similar to Sawyer's, but not quite as much of a following, not not as big of a, a place as Sawyer's um, as far as the popularity, more underground, I guess. Um, and then. Sawyer's I got in this battle Dave Risque of Gucci Productions I remember he uh he put me in this DJ battle and I I won a DJ battle and from that point on I started DJing at Sawyer's so it was just uh let me make sure uh that first so the first gig what was was really a DJ battle where I had to show what I had and I did exactly what I had been practicing in the basement, which was a bunch of tricks, playing a bunch of records. I had a stack of records, like about two inches high, not two inches high, about an inch high, sitting on a turn, however high you can stack them on a turntable, like five or six records stacked on top of each other because I was switching from record to record as fast as I could. And I started out my mix with uh, like a romper room, like a, like a, like a, something from a kid's show it was a record that said okay boys and girls now it's time to march 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 and then i played this record called um bostitch by yellow which starts out with a drum with a uh, marching band going and and they went crazy because the record was new it had just come out like the week before or something like that so they they lost their mind when i played that and then i had them at that point because I, I remember some of the other records I played was uh, 
I think it was Situation by Yazoo. So all those, we consider those um, part of our house, 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 like playing a house, like we were playing house, but it wasn't a genre yet because it was, it was a culture of just a melting pot of different music that we like. So it didn't even have to be disco or garage or in that case, that was more like, uh, what would you call it? Electronic, like somewhere imports that were coming over that we were playing. But uh, so I won that battle. And that's that's how I got in at Sawyer's where people would book me at other places because I was at Sawyer's now. So that that was like the biggest turning point in my career. The first time I won anything, I won like a hundred dollars, which was a lot back then. Um, and and I uh, won a trophy. But what I found out first time I DJed at Sawyer's the next time. I found out that I didn't need to DJ the same way I did in the battle. I needed to just play the music and watch the crowd and pay attention to what they wanted to hear and, and not try to be in battle style. Cause in, when you're in a battle, you got all these guys in the front row looking at you like, Oh, what's he going to do next? So you're getting caught up in that. <laughs> but, but all the girls are standing on the side, like, when is he going to play my song? <laughs> and so nobody's dancing. You're wondering like, why is everybody crowd around me? But nobody's dancing. Okay, wait, this is different from the battle. I need to I need to change this up. So I, ho- I think I changed it midstream in my first gig, changed it up a little bit. But the next time I was more prepared to just play what they wanted to hear. So I, I learned a lot from that, you know, but it was crazy as I had to be a turntablist to get noticed. But turntablism was not really what house, house music was about. So it's kind of a contrast. I guess that's another part of the culture too. You know, you really have to pay attention to the crowd and and what everybody is feeling. So, especially because music is a shared collective experience. Yes. Um, that's true. What was your favorite like live venue like? Do you have a favorite live venue? Um, when you say live, are you talking about where people will perform or where they would, or where you could have a party? Because for performing, I would say when we had our group jam silk. Some of the, my favorite places to perform was the Riviera and the Rainbow because they actually had a stage and they would have the place packed out. And it was a great vibe for a live performance. Sure. Um, back back then for DJing, of course, like it could be anywhere from Resurrection on the West Side, which was a Catholic church that they used to transform into a party all the way to Sawyer's or. Uh, the uh, Bismarck Hotel where I used to DJ with Little Lewis. Uh, and they had a, like a balcony. We DJ from the second balcony. Or the, was it the first balcony? Or the second, first balcony. But it was very way up. We were DJing from way up on top. We could look down at the whole crowd. And they were going crazy. Like it was like a sea of people that we were. And we were up, elevated up in the balcony DJing. It was crazy. Um, that was one of my favorite places. But probably... Um, I'm trying to think what was some of my other favorite. Yeah. So, I mean, those were like my, like the more underground it was, the better though. Like smaller places to me were even better. Like, because it was the people were right in front of you when you were DJing. So you actually were interacting with them even more. So from a live standpoint, more so the places that had stages, but for DJing, the the ultimate experience was even some of the parties in people's house were even more of a vibe than more intimate venues. 
We're going to take a short break and cut over to Randy, who's inside of the State of Sound exhibit, speaking with a few visitors. We'll be right back. What did you enjoy most about the exhibit? I really liked how all these electric guitars are here. They're pretty cool instruments, honestly. I, I play it too, but like these are just the coolest ones I've seen. All the old memories of all the old bands, sticks, and Chicago, and Journey, and brings back a lot of memories. I'm impressed that there are so many talented musicians from Illinois. Hip-hop. I listen to a lot of hip-hop and rap, so I like that part over there. I like... The sounds that you can listen to. What part did you enjoy best? Absolute best, probably the one that introduced Chicago. Um, never been here, visiting for the very first time, and this was absolutely worth coming to look at. You've been through the uh, exhibit. What was your favorite part of it? Oh, all of it. It is just amazing. Every artist, every kind of music is just amazing. Everyone needs to see it. And we are back. Let, let's switch gears for a minute because your your resume, not that you need to be like reduced to what you've done on paper, but your your resume is extensive. I mean, you've written, remixed, or and produced over 400 records. You've worked with Michael Jackson, Prince, Crystal Waters, Madonna, Yolanda Adams, uh, boys to men, Janet Jackson, Shaka. Khan. I could literally go on and on. Like <laughs> you've you've done so much work, um, and I just do. You have a favorite project that you've done before, or a or a favorite hit of yours? Uh, I would say when it came to remixes, uh, probably Michael Jackson. Remember the time. As far as productions, um, let me think here. Um, like, see, like certain records are more special to me because of what I went through to do them. Like Jack Your Body, which started out as something fun to do, became one of my most successful records, you know, going to number one on the pop charts in the UK. That was unheard of. Mm. for something that was in a new genre called house music which didn't even really exist you know what i'm saying so um but then there's other records that are in our catalog that like he loves me too cc peniston or the word is love uh, myself and sharon pass and higher with vanessa mitchell and uh ricky dillard which was a one of the um first gospel house records that actually still gets played even now that came out in like 99 uh, so that record actually uh, wow that's cool that's cool because it never really was promoted as a commercial record a lot of the, my favorites are records that weren't really promoted commercially but then I got nominated for Grammys for a lot of those but because they weren't like Beyonce or, uh, you know, a J-Lo record or something like that. You know, when I was doing those records, they didn't even have the Grammy category, the uh, Michael Jackson and all that. But once they had the category, I was doing more independent records on my own label. So to compete with the majors on getting a Grammy is a little tough because their network for, you know, bringing awareness to it, to your record 
is going to be definitely better than than uh you know for that particular group of voters uh that vote on the grammys you know they weren't really wasn't a lot of people that were as knowledgeable about dance music you know voting so you would have to really either have a super commercial record for them to vote for it or you would have had to do some phenomenal promotion to bring the awareness to them so it became you know to get nominated is one thing to win you know you have a better shot probably with a major label project because it's going to have more eyeballs on it i have two more questions for you and unfortunately we're going to have to uh wrap it up because we're <laughs> it's it's been such a great conversation that i've unfortunately let time slip away but um what i i want your opinion on uh the state of music today and if there's any um anyone that stands out to you right now that's really carrying the torch um i think that um let me see uh because I because I I play a, a fusion of old and new records from seasoned producers all the way to somebody who just learned how to produce today and they just did a great record. It's hard for me to pinpoint any one particular artist or producer or remixer that's doing great music. It's just such a wide variety of great music. If, if you pay attention to the to the sites such as, uh, you know, Track Source or Beatport, you might find out a little bit more about some of the better house music that's out there. Or if you just, you know, follow, follow, you know, like, for instance, our SNSChicago.com, our, our company um, and other companies that keep up with the great music and have like a wide a wide reach of, you know, to all the different parts of the world you'll kind of get a, a general picture of what's good house music because it's kind of a flooded out market. So it's hard for your average person or your casual house music fan to, to really kind of know what's good. So it becomes the taste of the DJ that becomes the, uh, that becomes the, the thing that you depend on for hearing great music. So it's kind of like, that's why we as a company, we put together a, a uh, a compilation series called curations where we have the DJs play music from our catalog that they choose and they mix it however they want to mix it. And they've even done some, some great uh, mixes that brought to light some of the stuff that was almost forgotten, you know, like stuff that didn't see the light of day. Cause we released like a ton of music on the same packet. We have a lot of different remixes on one package. So you end up, you end up kind of seeing uh, some people may get lost in the shuffle. So that curations kind of lets people listen to the whole package and they get to choose what mix they want to play. And it becomes uh, exposure for that. But just the answer to your question, though, real quick is is basically it, it's hard for me to to even because if I name one person, I'll be I'll be like, man, I should have named that person. And, you know, it's it's it. I mean, if you if you watch what I do and like say mixes I put out or if I do posts, um, my social media is at Steve Silk Hurley and the site is SNSChicago.com. If you go there, you can find me anywhere because then you can find my Instagram and everything. You'll kind of see what we're following. And that kind of that kind of would answer your question a little bit better about 
what it what music I like and what I think is great right now because it changes every week. I still have things that I like, you know, that that will always be in my crates, but then there's something that I'm going to get today on my email that I'll be like, "Oh, wow, I didn't know that about that record or I might go record shopping and find something tomorrow and and and, and I never I didn't even know about it when I did this interview, so <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so whatever I say right now wouldn't even probably apply if it's new music, you know? That's a good point. And, and music is continuously evolving and it's with streaming services. It's so easy to get lost in the shuffle and find your own favorites and get locked in that. But, you know, we'll, we'll step away from that. Um, I wanted to ask you if there was anything coming down the road that you wanted to talk about or, or, or share with us project wise. Um, I, one of the things, uh, with the change in the, uh, in the, uh, the, 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 the market and the, and the industry and the way people consume music now is that we used to, you know, we went from what, uh, eight tracks, to vinyl to eight tracks, to cassettes, to CDs, to downloads, to now streaming. So because people consume things in a different way now, the producer, remixer, songwriters, they all got lost in shuffle when people start listening to shop Spotify, because when you look up an artist's profile, you don't really see all their whole body of work. So um, on SNS records, we are releasing an anthology of my music. It will probably have to be in more than one part, you know, because we can't put everything, but we're going to release the first um, of a series of, uh, of anthologies. Um, the title of the album will be announced later. Um, but, uh, you'll, you, when you see it, you'll know that's what it is. Um, because, uh, it'll be a description as well. So you'll know what it is. But a lot of these records that I've done, people don't, because I'm not in the metadata. If you look up my name, you won't find, for instance, what, uh, you might, might not even find Michael Jackson in there. My mix of Michael Jackson or my production of of uh cc peniston love thing or because it's a cc peniston record but they just recently started giving credit to the remixer at least but they don't they didn't retroactively do it so that means the stuff that I've that's already out that the labels already released that I did for major labels. If they didn't put it in right in the first place, then not, no one will ever know that I did it unless I put it out as well and then put the metadata in there so that people will know that it's um, you know my body of work. Because you know a lot of times people like if I like a particular person's music, I want to see their whole body of work. You know, so I knew it was something wrong when I looked up Jam and Lewis and I saw only one album <laughs> and and it was an album that they did last year. And that's the only thing that you find when you look up Jam and Lewis. That's ridiculous. You know, like they were producers. So that producer line should be in there. So, you know, I'm definitely going to be an advocate for that if it doesn't change soon, because, you know, them, Teddy Riley, like think about all the producers that were pretty much artists in their own right. And that have a following of people that like their music and and nobody knows it. So that's why my anthology is so important to get that out. You know, although I'm doing new music, I'm also going to have that anthology coming out. And then 
after that, then I'll probably be having projects that have more sprinkles of new and old music and, you know, current versions of some of my older stuff too, like, like made for 2021, uh, like the reworks, you know, so that'll be a project with all reworks of, you know, things that I did in the past that, that, um, that we took into 2021 and beyond. I love that. I absolutely love that, especially because house music as a whole has had to grind and really hustle to get the credit and the platform and the recognition that it deserves. Steve, that's for sure. This has been an absolutely amazing interview, and I, I'm so grateful to be able to sit down and talk with you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. We appreciate, I appreciate everything you guys are doing to shine a light on house music my career i mean just, i mean more than anything that's just the overall uh, community of house music just to just to shine a light on it and you know thank you so much all right this has been the state of sound podcast produced by the abraham lincoln presidential library and museum to hear other episodes and more information about the exhibit the state of sound a world of music from illinois visit musicfromillinois.com